All right, if you need a copy of God's Word, you can slip your hand up, and these gentlemen will be glad to give you one. Now, check your temperature. How many of you were awake during that last song? That song pretty cool. I never heard it before. I'll be singing it next week. And then you won't think it's so cool. I was, I was almost getting ready to dance back here. And Mary said, ease up, boy, ease up. She's seen me dance. Easy, easy, easy. I had uh, years ago when I had my heart surgery, and then afterwards, I suffer now from a, a, an affliction. I'm telling you this so you'll feel sorry for me. If you don't have a handkerchief, you might want to borrow a tissue from someone. You can do this. So after almost 20 years, I had open heart surgery. And I, in the process of the surgery, I developed a little condition called atrial fibrillation slash atrial flutter. If you need to know anything about cardiology, I'm your man. And I charge a, heart, a whole lot less than they do at the Stern Cardiovascular Clinic. But a little free ad for them. But they've saved my life on a number of occasions. Well, um, I've had to go back in on several occasions and get cardioverted. If you don't know what that is, I'll hold a seminar on that later. But that's basically when they slap you with those paddles and you, you get off the ground. Uh, much higher than I ever did playing basketball. So, my best friend uh, in the world was up at the hospital to visit me, and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm out of rhythm again. He goes, well, you never had any rhythm. What's the, what's, what's the deal? And he said, we did this thing years ago. We did, uh, many of you appear to be hot. You're fanning, is it? The area's on, I think. I, I'm actually freezing to death, but that's because I have another condition that I developed as a result of heart surgery. So years ago, we, we did these things. Uh, we did a lip-syncing contest, and then we did a lip-syncing thing. We did it for several years at the church, and Peter loved it, I know. But uh, we finally went in, and I'm telling you, I have absolute, I, I just I, I can't dance. That's just the way it is, and can't sing. I don't have any talent. Um, my baby girl can sing a little loud. Got a good loud mouth. She can sing like her mama. But So we, did, we decided we were going to do this thing we'd done I'd been Elvis, I'd been Barney Fife, but we'd done all kinds of stuff. So me and uh, uh, two friends, and we, got, we taught this lady into doing it with us. We did Gladys Night in the Pips. Uh, I, don't even, I don't even remember what song we did, but it was, uh, anyway, me and two other guys were the Pips, and we went down to old old place down on Highland and bought identical outfits. And uh, we worked for two months <laughs> developing all these dance steps so we would be in step, and they had rhythm. Some reason I didn't, but they were, you know, they're over there looking. I'm like, <laughs> and finally, my friend said, he, said, "He said you are terrible. You have, huh? That was it, but that, yeah. See, he knows me. That was my my rhythm. All right, turn to Acts chapter 15. And as we celebrate Mother's Day together." Put your outline at Acts 15 and stick a picture of your wife or your mom or something in Galatians. We're going to go back and forth again today. We're going to wrap up the Jerusalem Council. I do want to mention one thing to you, and then we're going to get into today. Um, Next Sunday, the 19th, we're going to have, right after church, going to have dinner here, uh, help with the kids' camp. If you'd like to make donation, kids camp and the student ministry on their mission trip and their trip and the kids camp that's coming up this summer. 
And all you got to do is, is plan on being here next Sunday, hang around. We're going to have uh, Pink Flamingo, whose food is incredible, uh, is going to cater it to us next Sunday right after church. So if you put that on your calendar, I think you will uh, enjoy being here. All right. As we think about Mother's Day, and we're, we're, we're going to look at the Jerusalem Council today, but I, I, I want to share uh, how special a day this is in many, many ways. I'm not going to preach on it. I just, one of the things I, my mom's, this year my mom will have been dead 20 years. And I know Mary's mom's been dead three years. And here's what I would encourage you. It, number one, we can never say thank you enough, and I know... Many of you are going out to eat when you leave, live, leave here today, and you're taking your wives. And, and I, think about my, I think about my two daughters, who are both moms themselves, and I know how much Mary, as a grandmother, agonizes over her grandchildren and hurts for them. And, and I think back to all that my mom had to go through, and, and a lot of it I knew, a lot of it I just I wasn't sensitive enough, and... Uh, Here's my encouragement to you, especially children and especially men, uh, because I'm guilty, as most men are, of not really listening when my wife is talking. Uh, I've already figured out the problem, and I'm gonna, I've already got it straightened out. I just wish she'd shut up so I could tell her what the solution to the problem is, when in reality, all she wants me to do is just be there, just listen, just love her through whatever she, however she's hurting and I guess the older I get, and I think about my, like my grandkids and my daughters, and, and obviously uh, being married 46 years, and here's what I, my challenge to you as children and as husbands. Value those moms in your life. Value your wife, your mom, uh, your grandparents if they're still around, and if you have opportunities because, man, it goes by just like that. He's gone. We're joking with Logan Young this morning. He graduated from college. I, I just thought he was like a sophomore. And here he is graduating. He's going to med school. You, you need to pray that he becomes a cardiologist because mine's getting a little old. And <laughs> Logan will probably give me a deal. You never know. So value the fact you can spend time with your mom. Um, value the time you have while still on the planet with your wife and, uh, and the ladies, uh, just thank you. It, I think about, we, we joke about it all the time, and Mary and I got married so young, and to this day, there's two things I've never done. We've been married 46 years. I've never cooked a meal, because if I did, people would die. <laughs> I don't know how, if it, thank God that he invented a microwave, because Rando would be in some serious trouble. Brand, uh, that and soup, I can handle those too. I've never cooked a meal, and I've never balanced a checkbook. Now, I realize some of you don't even do that now, but uh, God gave me the perfect person to do those things. Now, what I have done and what I'm incredibly good at is spending checks, writing checks. <laughs> I don't even do that anymore, but I can clean up a kitchen like nobody's business because I'm an ex-professional. I did that for several years, and... We just have a deal. Mary cooks every meal and messes up the kitchen on purpose, I think. 
And then I just go behind and clean it up. It's funny if, if there's anybody over there eating with us, and, and I'm literally standing over them going, you threw with that dish yet? You threw, I'm like, I'm wringing my hands so I can get it in soak so it doesn't have time to harden. You know, she's, she's still taking stuff out of the skillet, and I'm thinking, hey, let me put that in soak. And she's like, well, could I get through with it first? So it, just value the relationships and the time. I, I know children, it, it's so special to have children and grandchildren. I was reading a story, cute story this week about kids. I mean, this may have happened at your house, but these two kids told their mom, we want to cook for you today. We don't want you to have to cook. We, we want to cook for you. I think it was Madison Helvey, and, and no, it wasn't. she wouldn't do this. So these two small kids, and they said, we, we want to cook for you, Mom. So she said, oh, that'll be nice. So they decided to cook, and she let them do it. Nine pots, two skillets, four bowls, large bowls, 11 spoons, five measuring cups, and one whole roll of paper towels. <laughs> Later, the mom said it was the best jello I'd ever eaten. <laughs> but can't you see that picture? You just walk in there and how proud they are that they made that jello and, dest- and destroyed the kitchen. Not about the jello, it's about we got this moment together. And I, I still think about. Uh, my mom and all the moments that were so special to her in, that for my life and, and like Beth was her favorite and it drives my other two children crazy, but Beth could do no wrong in my mom's eyes. And it was just, my mom had a very tough, tough, tough life. And uh, I still think back and wish that there's certain things I had done better. So just value the time. Turn to Acts chapter 15. Let's look at, wrap up the Jerusalem council. I think if nothing else, I want to read you a quote as we get started. I think as we're looking at the Jerusalem council and we're we're down under number two, we've looked at what's going on in the dispute, we've looked at defense, and we're going to begin today by looking at what James has to say. We'll get to that in a moment. But I think if nothing else... Here's what I really want you to take away from our look at the Jerusalem Council as we walk through the book of Acts. Is that they wanted, the church is really beginning to become now what Jesus intended it to be with the Great Commission. Go, you Jews who are following me, I want you to go into all the world and make learner followers of me. Disciples, go to the nations, non-Jewish people, people you don't like, people who don't look like you, people who, who have come, who are following false religions, all they understand is pagan deities, uh, immorality. I want you to go to them and share, share with them me. And the real focus of the Jerusalem Council is that has, has been happening under Paul and Barnabas. And now the Jewish guys have come down from Jerusalem first group is the Judaizers. We've talked about them. We're not going to go back and redo all that. But they're saying to the Gentiles at Antioch, Okay, Jesus is the Messiah, or Jesus is the Christ, but you've got to become a lawkeeper, a Jew, first, a proselyte, then you can become a Christian or a Christ follower. And we've talked about Paul and Barnabas did not take that well. And they snapped, and they got them in their face, and so now the Jerusalem Council is the result. We've got to talk this out. I'm going to read you this quote, because this is really, I think, what God was trying to get them to understand, and they do reach that point, even though they still struggled with it. But listen to this quote, and I wish I knew who had said it. I know part of it, 
The church is, above all, a place to receive grace. It brings forgiven people together with the aim of equipping us to dispense grace to others. On his trip to South America, Henry Nolan learned the paradoxical truth that, quote, we minister above all with our weakness. Too often, he observed, Christians operate out of the desire to be in control, to tell others what to do and how to think. But Jesus called us to be servants, and servants empty themselves of privilege and any sense of superiority. We all serve each other. We have different gifts. We have different capacities. We have different talents. But each of us is a servant under the Lord and of each other. And so whatever my gifts are, I use them on your behalf. Whatever your gifts are, you use them on my behalf. And the one thing that the Jerusalem Council that comes out of it more than anything else is it is about grace, not law. And even in the evangelical church today, as I stand here and you sit here in 2019, so many people in evangelical, good churches, so many people still struggle with, yes, you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but you got to do this and you got to do that. Not so much the Mosaic law, which is what they were struggling with, but any law. I, I can't dump on you my law to make you be like me. By grace, Christ saves us. We saw Peter's defense last week. We Jews are saved the same way the Gentiles are. So now I want us to look at what James has to say in the middle of the Jerusalem Council. Verse 13, chapter 15, verse 13. Remember, we're going to be going over to Galatians, so be ready for that. 15, 13. In verse 12, Paul and Barnabas defend what God is doing in their ministry to Gentiles. We talked about that last week. Verse 13. After Paul and Barnabas had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God, saying that's Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. The rest of mankind, non-Jews, may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. We're going to get into this in just a moment. Just one thing. In fact, when he quotes there verses 16 and 17, James is quoting the Old Testament prophet Amos. Two Jews to remind them that God had always had a plan that included Gentiles. The Abrahamic covenant, and it all goes back to that. In the Abrahamic covenant, God said, I'm going to send a seed through you. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. That means everybody. When you look at the eternal state over in Revelation, it talks about we're all gathered at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and there are people, believers there from where? Every tribe, tongue, nation on the earth. That's why missionary efforts, worldwide missionary efforts are so important that we get the gospel out to say to those who are caught up in whatever they're caught up in, many of whom are incredibly religious, yet they're following a false god. 
that we share with them the one true God who's always had a plan to redeem mankind. Jesus, the Messiah, yes, Jewish, but not just for Jews. So let's go back a little, a little background. James, who is James? This is Jesus' half-brother. So he was a sibling. We've joked about this before, but you think about it. Imagine growing up in a home where your elder brother was Jesus. Oh, my God. Jesus was your elder brother. And you all get around the table and what? And Barry and Joseph said, look at Jesus' room. <laughs> now let's look at yours. Hmm. You know, I don't have to tell Jesus to carry the garbage out. He just does it. Might be tough, wouldn't it? Because we do that anyway as siblings and as families. They did not believe. It's really interesting to read the Gospels. Jesus' own siblings, John 7, they even mock him during the feast. said, hey, if you are the Messiah, why don't you go up there and show everybody? Of course, it wasn't his hour yet. What made them believe? And that's why this is so cool about James here at the Jerusalem Council standing up. Jesus' sibling. What made them believe? This is so critical. When they saw their brother again alive from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That beautiful song he sang right before I came up today. The grave couldn't hold him. Therefore, the grave has no victory in our lives. Death. What a great song for an Easter celebration. It's not going to hold him. It's not going to hold you. Grave is not a problem. There's no sting. There's no victory. You are free, set free in Christ. Why? Because he was the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for sin, the perfect sacrifice that could pay for sin, that could say it is finished, and then rise from the dead and say later, I have the keys to death and hell. I alone have them. Revelation, he's the only one that can open up judgment because he is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world on and on. They believe because Jesus rose from the dead. Again, imagine growing up, that's your brother, and they didn't believe him even as an adult. They're seeing the miracles, and they're seeing, they know him teaching, they know that, who he is, and yet they still didn't believe. You know, we tell people, well, if I could just see Jesus, I would believe. They lived with him and didn't believe. But the resurrection solidified it for them. That's why you study the history of the early church. Again, even if you don't believe the Bible, if you study the history of the early church, those people willingly allowed the Romans and the Jews to persecute them, allowed the Romans to put them to death because they said things like, how can I curse the name of the one who's given me everything? Talking about Jesus. To so later, Polycarp, just, just curse Jesus. We won't do this to you. How, how can I do that? He's given me everything. They believed in the risen, risen Jesus Christ, their Savior. So James is going to address them now about what God is going to do. He's the author of the epistle James that's in your scripture. At this point, he's the leader of the church at Jerusalem. So this is important. This is really important, understanding context of the Jerusalem council. James was incredibly well respected. He's the leader of the church. He's the son of the Messiah, or excuse me, the brother of the Messiah. His, His nickname, he had two nicknames. One was James the Just because of who he was. And then his other one, which is really an interesting nickname, was Old Callous Knees. You know why they called him Old Callous Knees? He spent so much time in prayer, down on his knees. Those were his nicknames. So he very much, if you read his epistle, 
That's why this is important here. If you read his epistle, James strongly leaned toward keeping law. In his epistle, it's referred to over ten times, the law. Famous quote, faith without works is dead. Martin Luther didn't believe, called it an epistle of straw. And, and you have to, again, you study the Bible in context. Faith without works is dead faith. Your works prove you have genuine faith, repentance. So he would have been, remember the Jerusalem Council, what's going on? You've got the legalistic Jews, the Judaizers, the false teachers who already dealt with them. But you've also got the legalistic Jews who are believers, but they're struggling with, we've got to add law to faith so we can live, they can look like us and live like us. So James would have been, if they were going to call witnesses, if it were a courtroom drama, they were going to call a witness to come up and defend their side. James would have been at the top of their list because he was well-respected. He leaned toward the law, and he was the leader. Everybody would have listened to James. So they're excited that he's going to say something. Now, verse 13, that context, that background. They became silent. James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen. Simon Peter has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take them out, out for his name. First thing James does when he stands up for his moment to speak at the Jerusalem Council, he says, I agree with Peter. I agree with what Peter had to say, what God has done in the the past for the Gentiles. Verse 14 again, the Gentiles to take a people, take of them a people for his name. That's an interesting phrase. It's real important to understand history and content. Remember, Acts is a book of history. That's an interesting phrase. When he says, take a people for his name, you know what the Jews always called themselves? A people for his name. So James, the Jewish leader of the church at Jerusalem, uses that phrase now to refer to what group of people? Not Jews, but Gentiles. And here's what he's saying. Here's what's happening. It's what Paul and Barnabas have been talking about. And what they're defending is that the church is neither Jew nor Greek it or Gentile. It's one. There are people for his name, we're people for his name, in Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, we are one. That's why Paul spends so much time writing about it. So then verse 15 through 17, which you've already read, he quotes Amos. Remember, the Jews are here to tell the Gentiles what they need to do. So he quotes their Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament to them, to say, this is God's word, and what does God say? He has an eternal plan that included Gentiles. Verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. This is not just something that Paul and Barnabas thought up in the last couple of weeks or the last few years. This has always been God's plan. He picked Abram. There were no Jews. It was a guy named Abram. He picked him. God picked him. Gave to him this covenant. Changed his name to Abraham and said, I'm going to bring a Seed. I'm going to bring a blessing. I'm going to bring all these from the nations of the world. And created the Jewish people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, name changed to Israel. Simply God's tool through which he was going to bring the Messiah. It doesn't give them special status. Paul writes so much about that in the book of Romans. You think you're a child of Abraham? It's about the heart, not circumcision. It's not about the law. It's about grace. So James stands up and defends the same thing, saying this 
has been God's plan, and it's God's plan now, past, present, future. Now, verse 19, let's look. Number three on your handout. So what do they decide? Verse 19. Therefore, James speaking, as the leader of the church from which the boys from the home office have come down to straighten out the Gentiles at Antioch, James as a spokesman, be like the senior pastor. He is the senior pastor, the leader of the church. He's coming down. He says, okay, therefore I, James, judge that we should not trouble those who are from the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath, or the scriptures. So let's start with the decision of the Jerusalem Council. Big picture. They successfully resist the pressure to impose Jewish legalism as a prerequisite for salvation. You're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, they make two decisions here. One is doctrinal. One is practical. This is what we really want to focus on today. The number one principle in the doctrinal decision is that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, as Peter said, we all come to Christ the same way, Jesus the same way. We're saved by his work, what he did on the cross, based on God's word, based on God's work. The witness what Peter has shared, verse 19, James says, we should not trouble these Gentiles who are turning to God from paganism. No compromise. We don't add anything. Now, flip over to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Paul writing later to believers in the Galatia area. 1-6, chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. In other words, did this stop at the Jerusalem Council or did the Judaizers keep hanging around? They're going to keep hanging around, they're going to keep hanging around. By the way, do we have Judaizers in the church today? You better believe we do got to do this. you got to look this way. you got to act this way. You can, you can, you, 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 Peter can't come up here with a tie and jeans on. We cannot have that. You can't dress like that. Everybody has their sense of what law i got to dump on people. We saw last week, he says, you can't put a yoke of bondage on their, their neck that you can't even keep. Now, right now, we're talking about the principle, salvation is by faith alone. Back to Galatians. Look at verse 8. This is very powerful. Even if we, and that's the Apostle Paul, those with him. Even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's that word anathema that you hear. Let him be accursed. Remember, Paul was given... By Jesus, I want you to take the gospel to the Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles, and tell them the gospel of grace. Talked about it over and over, Paul and Barnabas, the gospel of grace, gospel of grace, gospel of grace. Now he's saying to them, I don't care if somebody from heaven comes down 
and tells you that it's some other gospel. That's anathema. That's to be cursed. You do not listen to that. You do not follow that. And if I, Paul's saying, if I change what I'm preaching and suddenly I'm preaching to you another gospel, don't listen to me. I'm to be cursed in your mind. Don't listen to me. Verse 9, Galatians. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be a curse. Same word. Again, two times he said it. Verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men, by extension, or God? If I still pleased men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. But, there's my word, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what's he saying? It's a lot there, and we're not, we're not working through Galatians today. Well, here's, here's what he's saying. The gospel that I was given by Christ that I preach and I will continue to preach, if you hear any other gospel, it is not the gospel, and it is to be accursed in your eyes. Run from it, stay away from it, and do not follow it. He said, and it's so important to understand from a leadership perspective, it's hard to do. The job of leaders in the church is to please whom? God. God. Not people. It's not politics. It's not friends. You please God, not people. Sometimes when you make a decision to please God, how do people respond? They don't like it. They don't like it. And so they take their cookies and go somewhere else. And it hurts, but you have to do what God wants you to do. You have to do what honors him. It's hard. Think about when we went to Mike and Steve, what, two years ago, a year and a half ago, we began the process of them becoming elders. And first thing we said to them is, you probably don't want to do this. It has to be a calling on your life. That this is, I thought the young men who think working on a church staff or being in the ministry would just be the coolest thing in the world. Well, you know what I say to them? If you can do anything else with your life and be happy, if, it, you, know, if you don't have the call of God on your life that you just burn, you can't do anything else, if you can do something else, do it. Do it. Because you'll never make as much money as you think you're going to make or need to make. And you'll constantly have a burden for people. If you're not ready to bear that burden, then don't do it. I still remember, and I'm going to get off on this but just for a second. I went to ministry at age 30 with absolutely no training whatsoever. And I just, you know, I had a good job, and expense account, and company car, new car every three years. And, and I... I remember telling Mary, because I was working with teenagers at my church, I remember telling Mary, I just think this is really what God wants us to do all the time. And her response was, well, it's about time you got it right. She knew. It's all I could think about. So all I wanted to do is hang out with those teenagers, and I knew they were hurting and share the gospel with them and love them, be there for them, and try to, to mentor them. And, and 
And so God opened the door and somebody asked me this morning, how long have you been here? And I said, well, I've been on staff 35 years. And God has, doesn't make me any better than anybody else. It just means that's where God put me. God has, he, has you where he wants you. This was so passionate for Paul. Now go back to Acts. Look at verse 20. This is so passionate for Paul. He loved these Gentiles. You would see right other places in Scripture. We're not going there today. But he absolutely loved Jews as well. He actually wrote in one place, if I could, for my fellow countrymen, Jews, if I could, I would give up my salvation and I would die in their place for them to be saved. I love them. He said, but this is what God wants me to do, so I have to do it. Didn't mean he never taught the Jews. He did. But his, the call on his life was take the gospel to the Gentiles. And the gospel was faith alone in Christ alone. Now, that's the doctrinal decision. Now, let's look at the practical decision. Two things are going on at Jerusalem Council. We've dealt with the doctrinal one. You share the gospel with people who are coming out of a pagan wor- world, how they're born again, how they are saved, literally the quote. We've dealt with that. Now, I want to finish up today dealing with the practical decision for those of us who are Christians in the body of Christ, in the local church, how do we deal with each other? There's two aspects of it. There's personal holiness and there's practical harmony. The principle here is liberty in Christ versus profitability for your brothers and sisters before other believers. So now he's beginning to talk in verse 20 to the Gentile believers. We're going to write to the Gentiles from the Jerusalem Council. This is the decision. We're going to write to them to do a couple of things. Abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from things strangled and from blood. What he's saying is, as a council, as Jews, we're not going to trouble our Gentile brothers by adding law to them to be saved. We're all saved the same way. But now we also have to live together. We have to live together. And we're going to ask them, as new believers who are coming into the faith, who's been, which has been dominated by Jews, that they stay away from a couple of things because they're going to be, number one in the area of personal holiness, talking about sexual immorality, that's a given. And abstaining from idolatry, that's a given. But that's not exactly what's going on here. I want you to just make sure you see the big picture. When he says things polluted by idols, remember, they're coming out of a pagan culture where you could eat anything you wanted to. It didn't matter. But if you were a Jew, those dietary laws were a big deal to them. The literal word here is kosher. Ever hear that word? So he's saying to them, stay away from food offered to idols, pagan gods. Stay away from sexual immorality, which was in the pagan culture in which they worship. That was part of their worship, was orgies around temple prostitutes. Number one, it would be wrong. But number two, it would be incredibly offensive to your Jewish brethren. So we're going to ask you to stay away from those two. And then the last one is the kosher. Food that's strangled or doesn't have all the blood drained out of it. That, in other words, that would be non-kosher food. 
animal, according to Jewish dietary law, if an animal is killed by strangulation, it's not kosher, kosher because all its blood is not drained out. So the idea here is understanding, loving each other, living together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's what he's saying. As a pagan, who come out, someone who's coming out of a pagan culture, you're free to eat anything you want to. You are. But if it offends your Jewish brothers or sisters, we're asking you just to abstain from that. Not as a point of salvation, but as a point of harmony in the body. I'm going to give you an example that we'll all understand. One of those topics we don't always want to talk about in church. That's the topic of alcohol. I was going to play the Brad Paisley song, but it would take too long. Some of you have heard that song. All right. You're free to drink alcohol. Oh, my God, he said that in an evangelical church. You're free to drink alcohol. You're not free to be a drunk. That's wrong. You cross a line. But if you're, let's say Randy was an alcoholic. Now, I grew up with an alcoholic father. I have an alcoholic, two alcoholic brothers right now. I know what an alcoholic is. Uh, I lived with one until we got married at 19. And I made a decision, even as a non-believer, I am never drinking a beer. I saw what it did to my dad. And besides, I'm crazy enough. Can you imagine me drunk? <laughs> the one time I got drunk, I was in the eighth grade. I was Ella's age, 14. We stole some beer from Walgreens. I'm not proud of it. We did. I wasn't a Christian. But it doesn't matter. Even if I was, it was wrong. It was at Christ Methodist Church. We were at a Christian event. So we go across the street, me and them, they didn't believe I would do it. And we stole a six-pack of beer or whatever I stole. I ran out the door with it. They, weren't, they didn't think I would do it. I did it. So we go back over there, and, you know, it's hot. The beer is also hot. It's summertime. I don't know. I never drank. So they didn't know how much Randy would drink. I said, I'll, I'll just drink. So I started. I don't know what happened the rest of the night. But I do know this, they had like a 12-foot wall at Christ Methodist Church, and they said I was running back and forth on that wall. See, I could have got killed. Never happened again. And I remember when I was a traveling salesman, all the guys that I traveled with, the whole thing, they always wanted to make Randy do something he ain't supposed to do. Like, we play golf. Come on, Randy, let's play for five bucks. Come on, Randy. They just wanted me to gamble just so they could say, you know, Randy was gambling. One of the guys was just crazy. We played every Friday. He was crazy about it. He goes, let's, let's just play for a Coke, for a Coke. And I said, look, man, relax. I'll buy you. Win or lose, I'll buy you a Coke. Because I knew I was going to lose anyway. I, I was terrible. I said, look, I'll buy you. It's not that. I just, it's something I choose not to do. But, but within the body of Christ, back to the alcohol example. If I were an alcoholic, the Lord saved me out of that, and, I'm, and I, it's something that I struggle with. And let's say Scott, my brother in Christ, is free to drink. What scripture would say to him, just don't drink in front of Randy. Because it's a problem for Randy. It's gonna, it might be a struggle for him. And you love him enough, even though you're free to do it, it's not profitable for your brother, liberty versus profitability. It's not profitable for your brother, so don't put that stumbling block in front of him. Drink somewhere else. 
The idea here with the kosher food. Your Jewish brethren are going to struggle with that. And until they're freed from that, in front of them, just don't eat non-kosher food. Eat it somewhere else. That's the principle that he's laying out for him, for them. We love you Gentiles. You're our brothers in Christ. We're all saved the same way. Let's try to get along. Just don't eat something if it's going to offend me. You're right. You're free to do it. It's not a sin to eat non-kosher food. But it's, it's going to struggle. It's going to make it hard for you guys to get along. So love your Jewish brethren enough not to eat non-kosher food. And Jewish brethren, by extension, don't dump on them your hang-ups. Let it be. Now let's look at the decree, verse 22. What do they decide? We've already seen what they do. How do they handle it? Verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church, the Jerusalem council and their decision, to send chosen men to the, of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also Barsabbas, and Silas, leading, leading men among the brethren from Jerusalem to Antioch. And they wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. So this is from the Jews to the Gentiles. We've heard that some, there's some who went out from us, from Jerusalem, have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law. And notice the last phrase in verse 24. It's really important. To whom we gave no such commandment. In other words, the first group of people that we talked about, the Judaizers who came from Jerusalem, ostensibly from the church, and said, you must be a Jew to be saved. What is the Jerusalem council and the leaders, James and the leaders of the church, what are they saying to the Gentiles? They didn't come from us. They didn't have our authority. They were doing that on their own. That did not come from the church at Jerusalem. We want you to know that. Back to chapter 15. Verse 26. Verse 25, excuse me. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord, we're united, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. You abstain from things offered to idols, the things we've talked about. So they're united, number one. They send a letter to the Gentile churches about their unity as Jews with their Gentiles. They're united in their purpose. The whole church. This Silas is mentioned here. We will see Silas later on. He's going to play a prominent role in New Testament history with Paul on his next missionary journey. And with Peter, when Peter writes his first epistle, Silas is like the guy who writes it for him because he's kind of like his scribe. He said, they sent these guys, they troubled you. And that Greek word troubled in verse 24 means they deeply upset, perplexed you, unsettling, they bankrupted you. We didn't tell them that Judaizer's message did not come from us. Now, verse 28. They're not only united to purpose, they're united in this principle. Verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden and these necessary things on you. Ephesians chapter 2. 
I'm going to read this. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Paul would later write these words, Ephesians 2. He, Christ himself, is our peace. He's made both one. He's broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, Jew and Gentile, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, both in salvation, justification, and in fellowship, sanctification. How many times have you heard me talk about the three tenses of salvation? Justification, you're born again. Glorification, you go home one day. It's the sanctification one in the, in the middle we have so much trouble with. Getting along with each other. The world looks at the church so many times and says what? Those clowns can't even get along with each other. I don't need that. We need to be able, the mark of Christians is that we love each other. Doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. These essentials, that's the point of the Jerusalem Council. The essential, how's a man saved? He got that right. Now let's live in harmony. Freedom, yes. Practical fellowship, important. And then one day we'll all be in heaven, we won't have any issues, and we'll enjoy each other for all eternity as the bride of Christ. And so we're united finally in their preaching. Look at verse 30. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and they gathered the multitude together. They delivered the letter, and they read it. I love verse 31. What does it say? Imagine the Gentiles. All they've heard is what Paul and Barnabas, and then these other guys come in and confuse them. Now they get the letter back, and it says, we just read, verse 30, verse 31. They rejoiced. I bet they did. They said, oh, whoo, we are saved. We are in. Thank God. They rejoiced. Over its encouragement. Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets who also exhorted them, they rejoiced. They exhorted them. They strengthened them with many words. They began to disciple them. They stayed there for a time. They were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there, and Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. They rejoiced. They were encouraged. They were edified. And they were discipled. Here, here's the picture I want to make sure you don't miss. From the home, big time office, even though Antioch is now the place where the church is really home office, but from Jerusalem where it all began. The Gentiles are getting this message. Please don't miss this. You're valued. You're important. We're sorry that it's been a Jewish thing and just been dumped on you. We're sorry. You're important. We're part of one body. We want to encourage you. We want to teach you. We want to edify you. We want to disciple you so the gospel can keep going out to your brethren, the Gentiles. I want to read one more quote and then we're done for the day. This was written not by a believer, but someone in the Roman Empire during the time of the early church, observing Christians, and said this, quote, about Christians. They marry like everyone else, 
They have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Remember, many times pagans would do what? They would take an infant child and do what? Sacrifice it. Continue the quote. They share a common table, but not a common bed. They exist in the flesh, but they don't live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, all the while surpassing the laws by their lives. They love all men, and they're persecuted by all. They're unknown and condemned. They're put to death and restored to life. They're poor, yet make many rich. They lack everything, yet they overflow in everything. They're assailed by the Jews as barbarians. They're persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred. End quote. That's from a great book by a man named Philip Yancey called Whatever Happened to Grace. You ought to read that book if you get a chance. By Philip Yancey, Whatever Happened to Grace. So here's the point, and then we're going to close. We're the body of Christ. And our world needs grace desperately. And we understand it. We have it. We live in light of it. We need to get along with each other. Which, by the way, we do a great job of. Not perfect. But then go out and love people and let them see that why do we love each other? Because of Christ. The early church turned the world upside down. All you got to do is read history. They turned the world upside down because they believed in the risen, risen Jesus Christ. Let's pray in his name. Bow your heads, please. So, Father, as we close out our time together today, we thank you for Jesus. Just that he's exactly who he said he was. The way, the truth, and the life. That he sets us free. He allows us to tell other people about that freedom. And it's a privilege. Father, you motivate us to share Christ. Motivate us to love each other. Motivate us to get past the things that seem to be a problem. Non-essential things. Don't let them be a problem. Love each other so that others can find out who Jesus really is, not who they think he is. And we pray in his name. Amen. Please stand as we close today.